0: Good morning. Hello, church. Uh, My name is Andrew. I serve as one of the pastors here, and I have the privilege of leading us through our study of the scriptures this morning as we step into an incredible time of year, a time of year that's referred to as Advent, which is a word that means coming. This is the time of year where Christians all over the world unite in their thoughts and in their hearts uh, as they rally around remembering the reasons for why Christ came into the world and And we also anticipate his second coming as we live lives marked and characterized by hope. And being in the Pacific Northwest, we're presented with a unique opportunity, I think, to really accentuate Advent because we're kind of in the middle of those dark and dreary days, right? Uh, The clouds have settled, the rain is falling, and the sun is hard to find, And so this is the time of year where we as a people look forward and we start longing to see the sun again. We want the rays to break through the clouds again. And many of us can't hardly wait to see it. We want it to happen. Well, there's something there for us as we consider the hope that we have in Christ. And we acknowledge the fact that as we journey through a world like the one we are in now, that Many of our days are marked by a darkness and a dreariness. There are many days where the circumstances surrounding us just kind of seem to block our vision of the sun. And what we need in those moments is for the sun to break through as we long to see the reason for our hope and we consider who our God is and what our God is all about. You know when the Gospel of Luke begins, this book that we've been studying over the past few weeks, it kind of opens with uh, on by kind of hitting a strong note of hope, because the people of Israel have been enduring some dark and dreary days. It's been approximately about 400 years uh, between the closing of the Old Testament and the opening of the New. The Old Testament being the first portion of our Bibles that convey to us the promises of God. And the reason for why we are hopeful people, because we are looking forward to all the things that God promises to be and to do for all of his people. Well, the Old Testament conveys those promises. But when the Old Testament closes, a lot of those promises had not yet been fulfilled. In fact, the people of Israel were not living in the joy of those promises fulfilled because they were living in the land that God promised to give them. But that land was occupied by the Roman Empire. And so they were an oppressed people. And many people during that time had a hard time seeing the sun. The clouds were too dark. The days were too dreary. But fortunately, there, was a devoted, there were some devoted families in Israel who remained faithful to the promises of God, who continued to trust in all that God would be for his people. Two of the people we met a couple of weeks ago, their names were Elizabeth and Zechariah. This was a married couple who devoted themselves to serving the Lord. They served the Lord together as a unit, as a whole. But for many of their years as a married couple, they didn't have a kid and they longed for a child. And although they were devoted to the Lord, the Lord had not graced them or given them the blessing of a child. And so that longing, that desire remained unfulfilled for many years. But if you remember how the story began in the Gospel of Luke, Zechariah was serving the Lord in the temple. He went to fulfill his duties as a priest, and he has a a unique encounter with an angel named Gabriel. And Gabriel appeared to him and told him straight up, look, you and your wife Elizabeth are about to have a son, and that son is going to have a special role to play in God's purposes in the world. And Zechariah found this message and this encounter just hard to believe. He was trying to process this very unique experience and he responds to Gabriel with unbelief. And he doesn't believe what Gabriel is telling him. And so Gabriel responds by telling Zechariah that he will be silenced until he sees that child birthed into the world. And so Zechariah went mute. He couldn't speak. And that's if you're a preacher, it's really hard for you to go a while without talking and without speaking, and this was Zechariah's world, and now he can't speak, and he's not going to be able to for nine months until his wife Elizabeth gives birth to the one that God promised to give him, this son who would play a unique role in the history of salvation and all that God's wanting to do to make this broken world right. And so their story starts there, and then about nine months later, it picks up again in verse 57 of Luke chapter 1. So if you have your Bible, open up to Luke chapter 1, and notice beginning in verse 57. This is sort of how their story is rounded out. It says, Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she had a son. Then her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her his great mercy. You want want to underline that phrase, his great mercy. And they rejoiced with her. When they came to circumcise the child on the eighth day, they were going to name him Zechariah after his father. But his mother responded, no, he will be called John. Then they said to her, none of your relatives has that name. So they motioned to his father to find out what he wanted him to be called. He asked for a writing tablet and wrote, so he couldn't speak yet. So he's still muted. And so he asks for a a tablet, and this is what he writes. His name is John. And they were all amazed. Immediately his mouth was was opened and his tongue set free. And he began to speak, praising God. Fear came on all those who who lived around them. And all these things were being talked about throughout the hill country of Judea. All who heard about him, that is John, took it to heart, saying, What then will this child become? For indeed the Lord's hand was with him. So I want you to think about this great mercy that is being shown, this this devoted couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Elizabeth has given birth to a baby, to a child, to a son, just as Gabriel had promised, just as Gabriel had spoken. And we're told this moment in Elizabeth's life is described as a great mercy. Now, what made that moment a great mercy? Well, you think about Elizabeth's story. This is a woman whose womb never held life before. This is a woman who longed for a child. And yet that longing was unfulfilled. It was unsatisfied for decades. And Infertility, of course, is is a bitter disappointment no matter what culture, what society, whatever you find yourself in. This struggle of wanting a child and not being able to have a child, that is a deep and bitter disappointment for many, many people. But if you take Elizabeth's story and you think about the cultural milieu that she was sitting in, it was even compounded because in the Hebrew culture for a woman who was devoted to the Lord to not be able to give birth or to have a child, that was considered a disgrace. And so many people surrounding her looked at her life and pitied her. They viewed her situation as a disgrace because righteous people, those who actually believed and trusted the Lord, those are the ones that should be able to be fruitful and multiply. They should be able to obey the first command God gave human beings in the Garden of Eden and yet she is unable to. And so society would look upon her as a disgrace, but then that dark cloud that was hovering over her life for so long, it broke And the rays of God's sun began to shine into her life once again as as her countenance picked up and her joy was found because she now was giving giving birth to a child and, and she would declare to the Lord, look, God has now removed my disgrace. This is what she says earlier in verse 25. She says, the Lord has done this for me. He has looked with favor in these days. That word favor means grace in these days, to take away my disgrace from among the people, that God's grace is meeting her disgrace and taking it away. It's a beautiful moment. It's a great mercy that she's, that's being described in this story, because this is ultimately what God does for his people. God is a God who removes disgrace from our lives whether that disgrace is something that we have brought into our lives because we have a history and a pattern of making terrible decisions and terrible choices and disgrace that comes into our lives because of things that we do, or if it's a disgrace that has been placed upon us by the actions and the decisions of other people, you know disgrace works both ways that feeling disgrace can be the result of things you do, but can also be the result of things done to you. And you might be in a situation where people are looking at your life as disgraced because of what the slander and the suffering that they have heaped upon you. And And you need to hear the hope of Advent, the hope of Christ, the hope of God's salvation is that God's grace meets us in the midst of our disgrace and he has the power and the compassion to take it away. And John the Baptist's story is going to show us how God removes the disgrace of his people. Elizabeth is experiencing it here and she's celebrating that. God has removed my disgrace. That, that is a great mercy. But then there's also great mercy in Zechariah's life. Zechariah, remember, he's been silent. He's been muted for nine months. He hasn't been able to speak. But after John is named and this baby shows up in their home, he, his tongue is set free and he starts speaking once again. But this happened after nine months of him being silenced. And there's mercy in that as well. There's a mercy that you and I should long for. It's a mercy that you and I should ask God for. And that is, we want God to silence unbelief. We want God to mute areas of our lives that are not willing to trust him, that are not willing to believe him, that are not willing to rest in his promises. It is a merciful act of God to silence unbelief in our lives. And unbelief pops up in three three directions. Our inability to trust God, our unwillingness to rest in his promises and to believe him no matter what, that, that tendency is challenged from three sources. One is yourself. Oftentimes, the things you think about yourself and the things you say to yourself, oftentimes those things are marred by unbelief, that you don't see yourself the way God in Christ sees you. You don't see yourself as lovable. You don't see yourself as desirable. You don't see yourself as purposeful, as someone created in the image of God and has an inherent value as a result of your creation. You don't see yourself that way, and yourself tends to speak those lies and those insecurities, and you respond much like Zechariah does to Gabriel. When God begins to speak and he begins to do things, you're hesitant to believe and yourself begins to spit words of unbelief in your direction. And when that happens, it is an act of mercy for God to silence that. This is why Jesus would say the things that he did to all of his disciples in Luke chapter 9. He would tell people who wanted to follow him and be a part of his kingdom, he says, "Hey, I want you to follow me too. But let anyone who would come after me, let him deny himself." And take up his cross daily and follow me. In other words, let them slay the self that wants to lie to them. The self that wants to uh, harbor unbelief in their soul. Jesus says, no, that stuff has to be silenced. That stuff needs to be nailed to the cross. That stuff needs to be rejected and removed from your life. But not only does unbelief come from the things we tell ourselves about ourselves. Unbelief arises from the world around us. You know, it's real. we're hard-pressed to be able to look around at the world today and to see glimmers of hope. It's really hard when this pandemic just seems to linger and nothing seems to change or improve. The goalposts seem, seem to keep moving and everything's delayed. It's, it's hard to find hope these days. And then we jump on social media and we hear everybody's opinions about everything and nobody agrees about anything. And that just compounds a sense of hopelessness and despair that ushers in dark and dreary clouds in our soul. And and it's in those moments when we need God's great mercy to come in and to silence that unbelief and to silence the, the world around us so that we are not swept up in their unbelief, but we can sit at peace and in rest as we trust in what god declares to be true but then the third source of our unbelief it comes from the voice of our spiritual enemy you know just as gabriel would be an angel we believe there are other dynamics at play in the world that is and the scriptures def- describe them as demons and these di- these dynamics and our spiritual enemies our spiritual forces they too want to encourage our unbelief they too want to encourage us not to be at rest and peace with the promises of God. And, and this is why Jesus would have that conversation with Peter when he's telling Peter and the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and give up his life and die on the cross. Peter doesn't want to believe that. He doesn't want to think that the Messiah would have to do that for someone like him to be rescued and restored and forgiven and cleansed. And so he says, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen. And so, Peter literally himself in between Jesus and the cross the very purpose for why Christ came to begin with and then Jesus would look at Peter and he would say these words to him he says okay get behind me Satan and he saw the one at work behind the scenes and he said get behind me Satan you don't have your mind on the things of God you have your mind on the things of this world And so Jesus, in that moment, mercifully silenced unbelief that was being inspired and engineered by the enemy trying to get Peter to stand in between Jesus and the cross. One of the biggest lies we can believe is that the cross is unnecessary. One of the biggest lies we can believe is that the cross is unnecessary for me. But if we believe the cross is unnecessary, then we are missing out on the clearest demonstration of God's love for a world marred by sin and suffering. Because the cross shows us a God who is willing to endure sin and endure suffering to rescue sinners and sufferers like us from that stuff. And so it is a great mercy when God silences unbelief just as he silenced in Zechariah's life and we should pray for it every day. God, would you silence unbelief? silence it in my life. And this happens to Zechariah and his unbelief was silenced and his voice was, was put on mute for a while. And then you look at verse 59, not long, about eight days after Elizabeth would give birth to this child. She and Zechariah would do what was customary. They would follow the Lord's counsel and commands that were given to Abraham and others that their children should be circumcised and it was customary for a baby boy to be circumcised on the eighth day. And, and usually that same day they would name the child. They would endow the child with a name. And everyone expected the name to be given would be Zechariah's name. That this son that they were longing for would be named after his father. That was customary. That was expected. But everyone was surprised when Elizabeth said, no, the child won't be named after Zechariah, his dad. No, the child's name is John. That's already been determined. The people are stunned. They're shocked because they weren't expecting that. And so they go to, well, well, let's go ask Zechariah. Let's see if he's on the same page with his wife. And so they go to this silent priest and they tell him that she's wanted what, they ask him what the son is to be named. And he grabs a tablet and he writes the name John down. And as soon as he does, that's when we are told that his tongue was set free and he began to speak again. And we have in this moment this incredible expression of faith as both Elizabeth and Zechariah align themselves up with what God said to do. God said, you're going to have a son. You're going to name him John. They said, okay. Uh, At first, I didn't believe it. I was put on mute for a while. Now I'm believing it. I'm declaring it. I'm going to express faith. And with that expression came freedom. With that expression came, his tongue was set free and he was able to speak once again. This is how faith expresses itself. Faith expresses itself when our lives are aligned with the promises and purposes of God. When we are no longer trying to swim against the current of God's activity and we're not trying to jump out of the river of God's activity, instead we're just sitting back and riding the current in the direction that the Lord would have us go. Faith aligns itself up with the promises and the purposes of God. That's how we express our faith. I took We went kayaking with our family last summer, and and kayaking's great when you're going with the current. If you ever try to go against the current, that's when it gets a little tough. And the, the freest person on the river that day was my daughter Delaney. Uh, she got in her kayak and she just took it nice and easy flowing with the current down. I had the hardest time out of everyone. In fact, I flipped my kayak twice, which was hard because Asher was with me. And so when my kayak flipped, he flipped. And so we're all trying to get it. And usually it's because I was trying too hard. Usually it's because I was trying to do something too clever. And I was trying to do something too creative in that moment. And so rather than just sitting back and riding the current in the direction I was supposed to go in. I was working so hard and I got imbalanced and I ended up flipping and making a mess of everything. Well, one of the reasons why hope may be lacking in some of our lives, that our hope may be disrupted, is because we're not resting in the promises of God. We're not trusting in the promises of And the purposes of God, we're trying to go against the current or we're trying to get out of the river altogether. And when we do, we lose sight of the hope that we have in Christ. But what you see in Zechariah and Elizabeth's lives is that they are aligning themselves up with the promises of God. And now they have joy. Now they have peace. Now things are changing in a healthy, helpful way. But then you also see this dynamic. No, does he expresses faith in that way? The moment his tongue is set free, Zechariah is able to do the things he was created to do. The moment his tongue is set free, he starts to praise God. He begins to worship the Lord. This is what freedom is for the Christian. Freedom isn't the freedom to do anything you want to do, freedom is the ability to do what you were created to do. You might think about it like this. I've shared this analogy with you before, but if you had a a fish, you're going to put that fish, if you had a pet fish, you're going to put that fish in a bowl of water or an aquarium, a tank. That fish is designed for a certain habitat. It's designed for a certain environment. But if you ever were to take that fish out of that habitat, that environment, and you put it in any other place, things aren't going to go well for that fish. You might give that fish more space by taking him out of the bowl, putting him out in the open floor, but that space, that freedom, so to speak, is going to kill him. Because a creature is only as free to the degree where they are faithful to their design. When we are living out the reason of our existence, that's where freedom is found. That's where freedom is had. This is why so much freedom is emphasized in the New Testament. It's one of the fruits of the gospel, that the gospel brings freedom to our lives because it allows us to do the things we were designed to do. In Zechariah's case, he's praising the Lord. He's worshiping God. And in our case, we praise the Lord. We worship God. We're doing that which we are designed and created to do. And so freedom is where his faith is being expressed expressed Zechariah has been set free and the first thing he does is he praises God and as all this is happening in their lives you have this great mercy showing up in this household then you have this expression these expressions of faith taking place you begin to see hope spreading all throughout the region other people are seeing it. Other people are benefiting from it. Other people are being impacted by what's going down in their lives. We're even told at the beginning of the passage that after Elizabeth gave birth, everyone there rejoiced with them. A beautiful picture of community where we rejoice with those who are rejoicing. But then the beautiful thing about A church community, a gospel believing community is that yes, we rejoice when everyone's rejoicing, but we also are willing to weep when everyone's weeping and to grieve when everyone's grieving. We are a people who have emotional flexibility. And we know that as we journey through life in a fallen world, you're going to experience a wide range of circumstances and situations. Some will be life-giving and cause joy. Others will be life draining and cause sorrow. Well, in the family of faith, what do we do? We rejoice with those who rejoice. We grieve with those who grieve. We have emotional stability because of the hope we have in Christ. This is why Peter would, I mean, Paul would later write about rejoicing even in the midst of your sufferings, not because your sufferings are easy and that they don't hurt, but because you haven't lost hope. That no matter how dark and dreary the days are, there's still a sun shining on the other side. And this is one of the realities of the Christian faith is that the sun never ceases to shine even when the clouds block it from our vision. Christ crucified and risen never stops raining, even when clouds block his rain from our vision. So what do we do? We live by faith. What do we do? We don't protest against the darkness by swimming against the current or jumping out of the river. No, we rest, we trust, we believe. We express our faith. This is what Zechariah and Elizabeth are doing, and because they are, we're told that hope is starting to spread it says as all these things are being talked about throughout the hill country of Judea and there's just, there's curiosity surrounding this child and everyone's asking the question what then will become of this child and as they're asking that question and as they're considering all that God is doing for Elizabeth and Zechariah It also says that it uses this word fear, and it says fear actually gripped the people. Now, remember what we said about fear last week. When the Bible talks about sinners and sufferers, human beings like you and I, fearing God or fearing the Lord, this doesn't mean that we are afraid to the point where we want to separate ourselves as far as possible from the God who created us and from the God that we are accountable to. That's not what the Bible means by fear, at least the healthy, holy fear. We said last week, no, fear looks like it's that sense when a human being realizes that God is really, really big and we are really, really small. That's what it means to fear the Lord. God is big, I'm small. Now, to be small does not mean to be insignificant, it just means to be small. It means to see that you are a limited creature with finite capabilities and a temporary lifespan. Your smallness compared to God's bigness, you're reminded that God is eternal and God is infinite, that he is holy, that he is other. When you're confronted with that, it kind of puts things in perspective. And those who fear the Lord are those who recognize, yeah, God is big. I'm not. I'm small. But to be small does not mean to be insignificant. Otherwise, God and Christ wouldn't have come down to meet with us. He wouldn't have come to claim us. He wouldn't have come to rescue us. He himself would not have become small by being born to this teenage virgin named Mary and her husband Joseph. That our God became small so that we might be reconciled and rescued so that we might find hope once again. This is the beauty of Advent. This is the anticipation that is spreading, though everyone doesn't know exactly what God is going to do, so they're asking the question, what will become of this child? And then as John, this cousin of Jesus, as he begins to grow, people start to get a better idea because this baby, this child would become a man who completely belonged to the Lord, He was one who belonged to the Lord. He was consecrated. He was set apart. He had a unique role to play in the world, and he played it well. But what's interesting is that if you were alive in the first century, and if you were a part of the religious elite community in Jerusalem, or if you were a part of the Roman government in the power players of the first century, you would not have looked at John the Baptist and thought, there's a guy who belongs to God. You would have looked at John the Baptist and thought, there's no way that guy belongs to anyone. Because you would have seen a man who lived in the wilderness, who wore camel's clothing and he, a leather belt around his waist. You would have seen a man who's in the wilderness eating locusts and honey and he's living off a very strange diet. He was a man who removed himself from society as a protest against the society he was born into. Because he knew, just as the prophet Elijah knew in the Old Testament, that the people of Israel needed to return to the Lord that they had, they're fighting against the current of God's activity. They're trying to jump out of the river. And so John the Baptist said, no, my life needs to declare something different. And so he dressed in a way that was reminiscent of Elijah, and he spoke in a way that was reminiscent of Elijah. He was doing the very things that the prophet Malachi said he would do. This is how the Old Testament would end. In Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, We're told that Elijah, or this is what he says. (laughs) Look, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. This is what uh, John the Baptist would do. This is the one Malachi was speaking of. And so when John the Baptist grew up, he became that guy. He belonged completely to the Lord, doing exactly what the Lord told him to do. Jesus would go so far as to say, of all the people who've been born of a woman, no one's been greater than John. And so it makes us think, okay, what was so great about him that Jesus would say that? Well, if you think about John the Baptist, you need to think about humility. Humility is knowing your place in the world and knowing your place before God. This is where the fear of the Lord comes from. It is, he is big, I'm small. I'm gonna do what he says. John the Baptist did that. He knew his place in the world. He didn't try to climb any social ladder. He did not try to improve his position. No, he lived as a poor man in the wilderness calling Israel to turn and trust the Lord. So you find in John the Baptist, someone who's marked by humility. You find in John the Baptist, a man who was marked by courage. He was a courageous guy. He often spoke truth to power. He often said things that people didn't want to hear because he loved them and he loved his God. And so he would call out the religious elite. And he would call out the Roman government. He spoke truth to power. This is what got him beheaded. So you see humility. You see courage. You also see a man who was uncompromising in his conviction. Even when he had to step up and call Herod out for his dysfunctional relationships And Herod's wife would have him beheaded. Even then, John the Baptist stayed faithful, uncompromising in his convictions. This was a man who belonged completely to the Lord. And in John the Baptist, we find an example of what it means to be humble, what it means to be courageous, what it means to be uncompromising in our convictions. But the most important thing about John the Baptist Yes, he belonged completely to the Lord, but the most important thing about John the Baptist is that he bore witness to Jesus. At the reason he came into the world at the time that he did and the reason he lived the life that he did is because he was called and consecrated by God to point people towards the Messiah. If you like football, you might think of John the Baptist like a fullback. You know, a fullback is a guy on the team who doesn't get a lot of glory because he rarely gets the ball. He rarely ever crosses the finish line. A fullback is a guy who, when the quarterback says hike and the play begins, the fullback is hitting the line and blocking so that the tailback who gets the ball can run through the lane. The fullback kind of prepares the way for the tailback to go so that he can get to the goal post and get to the goal line. When you think about John the Baptist, he, he served like a fullback. He didn't get a lot of glory. He didn't carry the ball. He wasn't the Savior. He wasn't the Messiah. He wasn't the God, man. But he prepared the way for the, Lord, for the world to recognize the Messiah when he comes. And so years after, he, like about 30 years after his birth, John the Baptist is out in the wilderness and he's baptizing people who are returning to the Lord and trusting in his promises. They're getting in the current of God's activity. He looks up and he sees Jesus coming down the road. And the first thing he says, he points in Jesus' direction and he says, look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he pointed everyone to Jesus. See, John the Baptist did not have a Messiah complex. He wasn't a guy he thought he was anyone's savior. And you and I would do well to remember the same thing, that we are not anyone's savior, but we bear witness to the one who is. And we stand aside and we point people in Jesus' direction, this Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He takes away the source of our disgrace. You know, when John the Baptist uses that language for Jesus, calling him the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he's calling back to a ceremony that was practiced all throughout the history of Israel known as the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was the highest and holiest day on the Jewish calendar. This is when God's people would gather in the city and the High priest at the time would enter the Holy of Holies and offer up a sacrifice of atonement on behalf of the people. Now, many people are familiar with that ceremony, that this unblemished lamb would be slaughtered and presented on an offering, and and it would represent atonement being given for the people. But what people don't often realize is that there was a second lamb, a second goat at play in that ceremony. You have the one that was offered up as a sacrifice, but then you also had another one where the high priest would come, step in front of the people, and he would place his hands upon this goat. And as he would pray, he would as he would place his hands upon the goat, he would pray for forgiveness for the people. And so the gesture of his put him putting his hand on the head of the goat represented Israel's sins being placed upon this goat. And then after he would do that, he would then send the goat away, and the goat would walk away from the people and never to return. It would wander off into the wilderness, wander off into the woods. Literally, that that goat represented the sins of God's people, the disgrace of God's people being taken away. And so when when John the Baptist calls Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that's the imagery that's popping up in everyone's minds. That's the imaginary that's been at work in the history of Israel so that they can see, oh, this Jesus has come to do something unique. He's come to do something specific. And when Jesus would go to the cross, this is exactly what he would do. He would die as a sacrifice of atonement, and he would die in order to expiate or to remove or to take away the sin and the disgrace of all of God's people. This is what John the Baptist did. He pointed to Jesus, identifying him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this is what we do too. We call people's attention to Jesus because he's the only one who can remove all of our disgrace. Whether it's disgrace that arises from things that we have done or it's disgrace that arises from things done to us, Jesus is capable and compassionate enough to take it all away so that we can have hope, so that we can have peace, so that we can have joy, so that we can know we're loved, that we are loved by God. See, a Christian isn't a Christian because they're perfect. A Christian isn't a Christian because they figured something out that nobody else can figure out. A Christian is someone who looks to Jesus and sees his crucifixion and his resurrection, the source of all of their hope. And so they put their faith in Jesus, they trust in Jesus, stepping into the current of God's redeeming activity and writing it, writing it down. One of the ways that we do this, one of the ways that we call attention to the crucified and risen Christ and we remind ourselves of how Jesus takes away all of our disgrace is we partake in what's called the Lord's Supper every week. And every week we, we testify, we bear witness. We're like John the Baptist pointing in his direction as we take the bread that reminds us of the body that Jesus voluntarily and willfully gave for us. We don't act like Peter and stepping between him and the cross. We, we recognize that this Christ who came into the world came to give his life for us. And so if you are a follower of Jesus, I encourage you to take the elements and you open the bread first. This bread that represents the body of Jesus given for us, serving a very similar function as the lambs and the goats served for the history of Israel in the Old Testament. We take this now and we remind ourselves of the body of Jesus Given for us. If you're not yet a Christian or not yet a follower of Jesus, I encourage you to to just refrain from partaking in this meal and consider your relationship with Jesus and consider taking Him into your life by faith first and then partake of this meal with us. But this morning, those of you who are trusting in Christ, I encourage you to take the bread with thanksgiving in your hearts. And after consuming the bread, we turn our attention to the fruit of the vine that reminds us of the blood that Jesus shed so that our sins could be forgiven. And we also recognize that there's a connection between the blood that Jesus sheds and the sufferings that we endure in a dark and dreary world. Because the prophet Isaiah would draw the connection between the blood that Jesus sheds and the healing of our lives. And so when we think about Jesus shedding his blood, we're also considering how one day All will be made right. All of our hurts will be healed. All of our wounds will be rectified. Everything sad about life in a fallen world will come undone. It will be rendered untrue. And so we partake of this cup this morning, thinking about those realities and reminding us ourselves of the hope that we have in Jesus. God, we thank you for sending your son Jesus to live and to die and to rise again. We thank you for the hope that you give us in him. We thank you for the hope that we have that one day he will return and make all things new. We look forward to that day as we worship in this day. God, we love you When we pray this now in Jesus' name.